0: Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News
1: Report.
2: It is the biggest annual profit for any U.S. or European oil company ever. Big oil posts all-time high record profits, Biden hits the road to promote infrastructure upgrades, plus... No company will ever be able to stick a mine on top of some of the best salmon habitat in the world. EPA vetoes the controversial proposed pebble mine in Alaska.
0: For real this time for real this time all of those stories and we'll see all of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com i'm brad friedman
2: and i'm desi doyan
0: stand by for six minutes of independent green news politics analysis and snarky comment what's exxon doing with all of that money
3: well, a lot of it is going back to shareholders. And that means big paydays for investment firms and for executives. But, you know, it's, it's not just Wall Street. Exxon is a very popular stock for retirement accounts.
0: Well, they certainly do sound excited about those record profits over there at NPR. Guess they don't call them National Petroleum Radio for nothing. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know it's stunning to hear about the record profits at the big oil companies, but first, let's take a look at some of the damage they're causing, shall we?
2: Yes, a grim assessment. The people of Earth saw 42 weather disasters in 2022 that caused more than a billion dollars in damage each. That is according to a new analysis by global insurance company Gallagher Re. Those $42 billion weather disasters included three mega disasters, costing more than $20 billion each in 2022. Hurricane Ian in the U.S. and drought in the U.S. and Europe. Plus, a record heat wave killed more than 40,000 people across Europe. The total damage wrought globally by weather disasters in 2022 was $360 billion. The researchers found the fingerprints of climate change on virtually every major disaster.
0: Yeah, but did you hear? ExxonMobil had their largest profits.
2: Yep. Oil giant ExxonMobil posted record annual profits for 2022, even as Americans struggled to afford gasoline, home heating, food and consumer goods. Exxon alone made $56 billion in net profit in 2022. That's more than $6 million an hour, an all-time high, not just for the company, but for the entire Western oil industry, thanks to Russia's war on Ukraine straining fossil energy supplies.
0: So when the the prices for gas went through the roof over the past year it wasn't because they were having difficulty finding supply it was because they were increasing their prices to get to these record profits
2: exactly in a press conference Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island highlighted his bill to levy a windfall profit tax on oil companies like the European Union has done and Whitehouse called out the oil industry's propaganda campaign that falsely blamed the Biden administration for high energy prices (laughs) while the industry was gleefully taking advantage of war profiteering and price gouging and Senator Whitehouse added this
0: when you're looking how to fund the $11 billion international loss and damage pledge that Joe Biden made, you might want to think about the $200 billion that the fossil fuel industry just extracted in excess profits. They are not stepping up to make good in international loss and damage for the harm that they cause. They have to be held accountable. Did you think they'd step up, Senator Whitehouse? Did you really?
2: In other news, President Biden was on the road this week to highlight long-awaited infrastructure repairs and upgrades thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law. On Monday in Baltimore, he announced the expansion of a 150-year-old rail tunnel that was damaged by extreme flooding during Hurricane Sandy, which will create 20,000 construction jobs and reduce car traffic and air pollution. Biden also traveled to New York to announce $300 million in funding to complete the first phase of the Hudson River Tunnel Project, which was abandoned mid-construction by the Trump administration. And finally... Over the past week, we've reported on the Biden administration protecting Alaska's Tongass National Forests from logging mm-hmm. and the pristine watershed of Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness from mining pollution. Now, the Biden Environmental Protection Agency has effectively vetoed the controversial proposed pebble mine in Alaska. Using a rare authority under the Clean Water Act, the agency banned the dumping of mine waste in the watershed of Alaska's Bristol Bay, concluding it would permit, destroy a 100 miles of streams and wetlands and pose an unacceptable threat to the world's most prolific salmon fishery. It is a huge victory for Native American tribes and Alaska's sustainable billion-dollar commercial fishing and outdoor recreation industries. As one tribal advocate said, quote, you can have a mine for 50 years or salmon for a thousand years. You cannot have both.
0: Very good news up north. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report.
4: And I felt like a loser, but I turned out the winner when it came
5: to Alaska, the land that I love.
0: Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com donate.
1: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. The 118th Congress has convened here in the nation's capital, and while overt Christian nationalists did poorly overall in the midterm elections, plenty of their agenda seems to have made it to the Hill. Between that and the right-leaning Supreme Court's full docket, there's a lot to consider. Christian nationalism expert and best-selling author, Catherine Stewart, will be back with us to share her insights. One of the requirements for making positive change is understanding the starting point. That's one of the gifts visionary Diana Butler Bass offers to so much of her writing. She gets it right about where we are and imagines the best direction for the future, whether we're talking about organized religion or our politics or our culture. That's why I am really looking forward to getting her thoughts about the moment we're all living through today when she joins me later on this week's program. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air, is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Journalist and best-selling author Catherine Stewart is an expert on Christian nationalism. She's the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And has also published a book about radical conservative takeovers targeting our public education system. With the January 6th anniversary behind us and a new congressional session underway, it's great to have her back with us on State of Belief. Thanks for being here.
6: It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to speak to you today.
1: So... Most recently, I read your very sobering piece in The New Republic called The Rise of Spirit Warriors on the Christian Right. And I wonder if we can dive into that. I, I'll start by just offering this one little snippet that really just jumped out at me, which is the idea that the American political realm is a place of spiritual warfare in a literal not metaphorical sense, is one of the defining elements of the new forms of highly politicized religion that are surging across the country. Unpack that for us a little bit.
6: Sure. Well, let's pull back for a minute. Um, American religion is never been a static thing. It's always evolving. But the evolution is frankly divided. I think we spend a lot of time hearing about the secularization trend, we hear about the rise of the so-called nuns. But I spend a lot of my time looking at what's happening on the other side, looking at what's happening to uh, people who are committed to religion. And within that group, there is a substantial shift. And um, Christianity, as we know, is incredibly diverse, but there has been a shift um, among some sectors of Christianity in in favor of, An increased militancy and increased support for authoritarianism. Um, And uh, so, for instance, one of these movements, uh, it's called the New Apostolic Reformation, which emerged out of Pentecostalism and neo-charismatic offshoots, is um, very theocratic. It says that um, Christians of a certain type should dominate all sectors of society, including government, education, um, and, and things like that. And, um, but it, it's not limited to um, to the neo-charismatic offshoots or, um, or groups like that, or the sort of apostolic and prophetic types of religion. It shows up among some reactionary Catholics, some right-wing Presbyterians or Baptists or non-denominational Christians and others. So while secularization is going on, the religious sort of rump, as it were, the folks who are on the sort of more... Or reactionary side of religion are becoming more radical. And it's sort of like, um I would say, um a style or a language is kind of shared language, this idea that uh American political scene is a, a place of spiritual warfare in a literal and not uh, metaphorical sense.
1: Yeah, the, the, you nailed it. I mean, it, it's also, it's a very sort of you know, sense of everything being deemed in these very sort of binary spiritual terms of, of good and evil, demonic and, and, and you know, angelic or whatever. and And it, it's very hard to imagine ultimately a strong functioning democracy when people are using those kind of terms to describe the other side today. Uh, this is we're, we're recording this on um, the first, and at this very minute, there is a there's a gathering of people at the Bible Museum where people are like they're, it's they're calling for a repentance of America and that you know everything we're doing is wrong and that there's you know it, you you're in these in these circles and you're kind of wondering, well, how do we have a conversation about going forward together when we've already established that you are, you know, you, you have deemed yourself the angels of light and, you know, people perhaps like me as like demonic forces. It's very hard to imagine a functioning democracy like that.
6: Yeah. It's othering. It's about sort of dividing between the us and the them, the, the, Uh, pure versus the impure. And it's sort of saying who gets to properly belong in the nation and who doesn't. And we're frankly seeing the radical right become closer to or part of the political mainstream in America. And many conservatives are pushing the idea that there are sort of real Americans who are people who worship like them or belong to certain approved religious backgrounds and have certain approved political views and those who are not. It's a kind of exclusionary
1: Nationalism. Yeah. I mean, this is so much of your work right now um, is focusing on this term, Christian nationalism. And, you know, we we should probably just take a minute because there's lots of different definitions of that. But but how you are seeing uh, Christian nationalism also seems to be evolving and changing. I mean, it's not a static idea. How do you see Christian nationalism today, the first of February 2023
6: well christian nationalism uh is not a religion right it's it's not um it's not a it's not christianity it's not the whole of christianity i think of it as um as involving two things number one it's an ideology and number two it's a political movement an organized quest for power so the ideology says that only um uh it's it's sort of again about who gets to belong in the nation and who doesn't it says the i you know promotes the idea that america is founded as a christian nation according to a very particular definition of christianity and says that um all of our problems stem from uh our abandoning the supposed uh conservative christian heritage of our founding but this ideology is really a tool for a leadership driven political um machine that turns that sort of deep mythology into political power. And the uh machine machinery of the movement is is very dense. It's very it's organization driven, leadership driven, and the strength of the movement is in that dense organizational infrastructure.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point that this is, you know, uh, this uh, has, the, has the appearance of being a grassroots movement of people kind of wait, say, you know, all I want is to be Christian in America. Is that so wrong? But really, one of your major points is that this is actually coming from a very, cons- you know, centralized and concerted effort around power that is using um, convincing messaging. To a certain part of the population and the vehicles, the networks, in order to spread this, um, this idea of Christian nationalism, and and specifically this idea that there are some people who have a privileged status and who truly belong, and everyone else is here kind of, you know, if they're lucky— um, by the indulgence of this true American minority, um, so I think it's just really important what you said is that that this is not a, an, actually a grassroots movement, but it it look it can look like that, but there's a very particular power grab, and like organizational you know um, efforts. I mean, I wonder if we could just focus in for a second on a current manifestation located in the the sunshine state of Florida, which I think is just really, it's almost um, a a textbook case of what's happening that we're seeing.
6: That's absolutely
1: true. When you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis and how he's
6: um, using the kind of language of authoritarianism and the kind of doing these sort of authoritarian uh, actions, taking aim at public education, trying to cancel or censor, uh, uh, the teaching of legitimate history, um, the recognition uh, of um, LGBT rights or same-sex marriage and things like that. Um, it, you see that this is what a lot of authoritarians do. It's it's a classic authoritarian move. Um, uh, anxiety about gender, first of all, is like rocket fuel to this movement and right-wing authoritarians always run these identity campaigns, there's a a we that are, are the righteous, uh, there's a they that we hate, and religion often plays um, uh, a, a role in, in distinguishing between the two. When you look yeah. at uh, leaders like uh, Maloney in Italy, if you look at Erdogan in Turkey, if you look at Vladimir Putin in Russia, when these leaders are binding themselves very tightly to uh, reactionary religious figures in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. It's certainly not uh, uh, limited to the Christian faith. It happens across uh, all faiths uh, around the world. But um, you know, religious nationalism is is uh, is hostile to pluralism, the principles of uh, pluralism and equality that represent the best of the American promise. And we're seeing it um, in the sort of broad Republican attack on voting rights and on the legitimacy of elections. This is what authoritarian governments, they do. They 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 reject the consequences of elections whose consequence, you know, that they, if they don't like the outcome and um, You know, we see uh, Ron DeSantis playing right into this, but you know what's really interesting about Ron DeSantis? Okay, so I attended the um, last year's um, National Pro-Life Summit. So a lot, I've been researching this movement for 15 years, and a lot of the ways that I do my research is I go to right-wing conferences and strategy gatherings and, um, and, and summits because I feel like you don't really know what this movement is doing until you're in those rooms and hearing them talk to one another, not just when they're, you know, invited on, you know, onto CNN, where they say something, you know, nice and mild, that makes them sound very reasonable. When we hear what they're saying to one another and their strategy. And so anyway, at the National Pro-Life Summit, I attended Kirsten Hawkins, who's the head of a very powerful anti-abortion organization called Students for Life of America. She's also a member of the, by the way, the Council for National Policy. She's has a relationship uh, professional, you know, uh, collaborates with Leonard Leo. They are, I mean, she's like very, uh, you know, really one of the uh, elite, a movement leader. So she she was referring to Ron DeSantis and I don't have the quote in front of me, but she talked about the money and, and manpower that her organization and the organizations they collaborate with are going to bring to bear if leaders like Ron DeSantis, and she specifically mentioned Florida, don't do what they want. And sure enough, a few weeks later, uh, Ron DeSantis endorsed, I believe it was a 15-week abortion ban or something like that. But if we want to know one of the reasons why the Republican Party has gone so far to the right is because this movement turns out, it has the ability to turn out a very substantial part of the Republican vote. They are the most they turn out the most reliable portion of the Republican vote. And because of gerrymandered districts, a lot of Republicans are never going to run against a Democrat. So they can only really get the support of this movement by running as far right as they can by endorsing mm-hmm. what exactly what the movement wants them to do. And we've seen this happening, uh, certainly in Florida and beyond.
1: You, you know, in the last, in the midterms, there was a narrative that Christian nationalists did not do as well as, as was feared. Um, And, you know, many of us kind of went, okay. And, you know, Christian nationalists goes along with election deniers and some of the people who are the most anti-democratic or overtly did not fare too well. I'm curious like, how do you read that? Uh, do you breathe a sigh of relief or are you? Mm,
6: I, I think sure. we dodged a bullet, but it grazed our cheek. I mean, uh, some folks like Mastriano did not win their elections in Carrie Lake. Others handily won their elections. I think about uh, Vance. I think about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think about DeSantis. So, um, you know, uh, uh so I don't think that uh, you know. I think breathing a sigh of relief is is certainly
1: premature. Right. One of the things that just puzzles me is there, a, a reading of history that really ignores a lot of just I hate to say facts, but it is facts. Like uh, my sense is, if uh, if the founding fathers wanted this to be a Christian nation, that was the most logical thing for them to do, was just to make a Protestant nation, you know I mean? Because that was the model that everyone used, um, or at least coming from Europe, that was the model. And so, like, it, I'm just curious. How, and, and then you read, like, George Washington's letter um, to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, there's just so says, many
5: texts. You
6: can read Madison, you can read you, Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about it is our, our founders, you know, proudly and self-consciously created the world's first secular republic and they did so very self-consciously and they told us they were doing as they were doing it and um, but this history and of course they were from diverse uh, uh, faith backgrounds some were many of them were deists which was considered a kind of heresy in their time it was you know they sort of endorsed a kind of natural order of things, which was not like sort of theistic uh, order of things uh, by any means, but our country was founded to serve, you know, of the people, by the people, and for the people, not to serve any kind of Pope or any uh, any uh, religious purpose. So this is one of the reasons why people like David Barton, the movements, you know, one of the key myth makers of the Christian nationalist movement, who was very politically influential, has become so important. His sort of, I would say, frankly, fake reading of history is pseudo history has been debunked over and over and over by academic historians, but it's done nothing to slow his career. um, Because, um, simply because it's not true the movement leaders know that they need to sort of in order to sort of take this country in a completely radical direction, they need to. You know, sideline uh, accurate history, and so they need. I mean, that's
1: yeah. It, it's creating a it's a creating a a myth that you can just. I mean, n- not in the good sense, but just in the sense of like, oh, you know, let's put together some words and say this is how it went down, and and not and just ignoring actually like that's one of the things that they got right. You know, Uh, you know, there's plenty they got wrong, but they got this right. And, and the idea also there were many non-believers at the founding of our country. It wasn't like, just like, it wasn't just all these like, you know, pilgrims or whatever, you know, Uh, and And so it's just
6: very religious people as well. But what they did is they very self-consciously created uh, a religion with uh, a separation uh, of religion and government. And never this was never applied uh, perfectly, of course, and our country has gone through a lot of different shifts. We've had different uh, religious movements arise like the Great Awakenings, and we've had other religious movements arise like the social gospel. We've always had, um, but but the separation of church and state is, um, you know, it's not just a, for atheists, it served our country very well, and our religious uh, movements very well since our founding, the reason we have such a sort of vibrant and diverse religious landscape is precisely because we've had a separation of church and state. Exactly.
1: I mean, you know, this is this is like the... So it's just really important. So we have that founding, and yet here we have this... Throughout it, there have... My guess, and this is where I actually, as as a historian, correct me, there have been movements... That, that may not have called themselves Christian nationalists, but, but felt empowered by that idea. I mean, certainly the Ku Klux Klan did. Um, you know, they felt like they were owning this country in a certain way. There are probably other examples. I mean, this is where does Christian nationalism 2023 fit into the trajectory of this kind of impulse uh, of the, theocracy or power grab in the name of religion?
6: What's really interesting is when you're talking about groups like um, the, you know, sort of white nationalist groups or the uh, groups like the I think about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and some of those militia movements for some of them were not particularly religious for a long time, but they have adopted the language of Christian nationalism. Um, In recent years, I'm thinking about the Proud Boys specifically here, because it's become very useful to them. It's a way of sort of getting everybody giving the kind of ideological um, bolstering for for their activity. Uh, And others are very, uh, have adopted the sort of language and and framework of Christian nationalism because it sort of conforms to their anti-government, that conforms to their mm. kind of anti-government uh, attitude.
1: Yeah. Where where does Christian nationalism fit in our conversation today about anti-Semitism? Well,
6: um, well, again, it's about who gets to properly belong in the nation and who doesn't. And if you're not a certain type of uh, Christian, uh, you can be here with, you know, at the largesse of, of the true Americans. Um, but it 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 really is a kind of uh, again exclusionary nationalism. Now that's not to say that there's there there's been you know sometimes you'll hear leaders talk about Judeo Christian nation, uh, which gives in a way a, the appearance of diversity to their movement and the uh, terms uh, kind of toleration. And when you go to a lot of the conferences, often they'll talk about the importance of Israel, which of course in in some. Uh, among some of them, plays the state of Israel plays a really important role in their sort of idea of the end times. So it's complicated.
1: Yeah, it's it's complicated. It, but then you hear it, a lot of
6: threats, like you've got to be the right kind of Jews. You better be, uh, you know, one who supports us rather than you. Better watch out. I mean, it's there's a sort of uh, a threat built into some of that. Kind oh my
1: God! I mean, even Donald Trump. Did this like you, you know, you have to make sure you're appreciative of what I did and be the right kind of Jew. And I mean, it's just I And that I think it is very much in this Christian nationalist. Um,
6: it, it's sort of the same way uh, in, in some ways about the issue of uh, ethnicity, like the movement it, it does a lot of outreach to conservative leaning pastors of color and. Uh, because they know that if you get the pastors, you can get some subsection of their congregants to vote for you. So they draw a lot of their uh, like black pastors and especially Latino pastors into these networks like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Wins or uh, Ministros Hispanos, which is a, a, a of South Florida network of Hispanic um, and Latino um, pastors, many of whom are actually Pentecostal or charismatic and more conservative leaning. And they work with them and, you know, try and d- deliver to them the tools to show them the biblical issues that should matter in election cycles. And the, here's how to communicate that to your congregants. But it's not to say that there isn't a lot of sort of racism embedded in the movement. There's certainly gonna make room for a pastor of color or a person of color if they are sort of conform to a particular type of, let's say political agenda. And they do, you know, they really want to, to draw, uh, they want to expand their their membership, they know that they're losing this sort of older white folk who have formed their base for a long time. And and we've seen the consequences in the last election. So between 2016 and 2020, uh, the Latino vote overall shifted, I believe it's eight points in favor of Trump. And part of that has to do with outreach to um, Latino pastors, uh, the establishment of right-wing Latino focused radio, um, and other types of initiatives. When I was I did a piece uh, not too long ago about the shifting Latino vote, and I was following some Facebook pages that target, you know, Latino populations in different states. And there's the infusion of sort of right wing religious rhetoric, and even into some of these Facebook pages where people are going to find, and their Spanish language pages, they're going there to find, you know, work or community um, events or things like that. And all of a sudden, you see a post that's all about how abortion is, you know, demonic and things like that. So there's just been a very kind of aggressive outreach in these different ways.
1: Katherine Stewart is the best-selling author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Her writing appears in The New York Times, The New Republic, and many other places. Thank you again for joining us here on State of Belief, and thank you for all the work that you are doing.
6: And thank you so much for the work you do. Glad to be in this rabbit hole with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We need to take another break. But up next, Diana Butler Bass on true freedom, community, and much more. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive
0: Voices Network.
7: 911, what's your emergency?
1: America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying.
7: Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar, this time on Code Whack. What challenges do transgender individuals face when seeking gender-affirming treatments? What can be done to tackle these challenges? To find out, we spoke to Jeffrey Rodriguez, the director of the Los Angeles LGBT Center's community health programs. So what are the unique challenges that transgender individuals face when seeking gender-affirming care?
8: It's a lot. When I say it's a lot, I mean it's a lot because there's not enough. There isn't enough people to do that type of healthcare. So, that specific healthcare for our trans program, there is a waiting list to get in. I mean, it's not too bad. I believe it's about two months, but two months can be a lifetime for someone, you know, especially when they are going through this process. I was at the Trans Wellness Center working one day and I picked up the phone there and I received a call from a young person in Texas who was asking me a lot of questions. They were in high school. But they're already making their plan to leave Texas to come to LA to start their transition because they knew they wouldn't be able to do it in Texas. Talked about finding a job that would pay for it, what kind of company would give them health insurance that would help them get their care and and different things like that. And this probably 17, 18 year old person, they had one more year of high school and they were going to make a plan to do this. It was just so amazing to me, like all because of healthcare.
7: Get the full Code Whack story on progressivevoices.com or on Nurse Talk Media. And make sure to subscribe to Code Whack on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar.
0: Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear.
3: Brad Bannon, president and CEO of Bannon Communications Research. Brad, guest host for me every Monday from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern with his own program, Deadline DC. You've written so many great pieces. The latest uh, entitled Institutional Anarchy Prevails in the GOP House. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you wrote, lobbed a hand grenade into the GOP caucus bunker. And you say this with her announcement that the U.S could default on its debt this week unless the government takes extraordinary steps and Congress raises the national debt limit.
4: Secretary Yellen announced uh, two weeks ago uh, that the, uh, unless the United States government takes extraordinary, what she called extraordinary measures, uh, the uh, government could default on its debt uh, and shut down. Uh, Well, uh, she, in the meantime, has announced a series of, you know, it's essentially paper shuffling uh, and uh, to make sure the government can continue working, even though we passed the debt limit last week. Uh, But uh, unless Congress passes a uh, debt uh, increase in the debt limit by sometime this summer in June, uh, there'll have to be a government shutdown which would have anonymously bad ramifications for the economy, credit of the United States, and people who uh, are living on their Social Security checks.
3: Well, this is a serious challenge to the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, Uh, Is McCarthy in a situation where he has to work with Democrats and even more so has to work with President Biden on
4: this? This is a really tough one for McCarthy to handle. He said in the article that if the fight over the debt limit goes anything like his battle to become Speaker, uh, we're all in serious trouble because there aren't any 15 ballots on this thing. If they don't do something by June the government's going to have to shut down and he's a very poor position to deal with it a lot of the hardcore Republicans want out of this is basically to uh, deal a fatal blow to Social Security and Medicare
0: again that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network this is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
1: Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. One of the things that makes Dr. Diana Butler-Bass so exciting to read and to talk with is her refusal to bring preconceived ideas to her scholarship the author of such books as Christianity After Religion, Diana has also explored mysticism, gratitude, and healing faith communities. And she also writes with powerful clarity on the current events deeply affected by religion. As we see many of the ways faith is being misused in our politics and culture right now, it's great to have Diana back on State of Belief Radio to tell us how to use it right. Thanks for being here today.
5: Oh, Paul! It is just so great to be with you. I don't know how long we've been actually sort of plotting this sort of goodness
1: in the world. We've been plotting goodness in the world. For, I it's 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 got to be like twenty years. I mean, so so you know, we this is so great to be reconnected. I feel like I I watch you so much on social media and 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 get a sense that you have a new Substack that is exciting. Excellent. What is that called? Let's just start there because I I want people to get as excited about this conversation as I already am. What's going on with your Substack? And I know that sounds like a crazy intro, but with you, it's actually a really good question.
5: Well, I have actually loved it. I write a Substack newsletter called The Cottage and it grew out of the pandemic and my need to connect with my audience. You know, for years I had maintained a, you know, regular author kind of newsletter. It was through another another platform. And what I had always thought of as a newsletter was simply a way of me informing my readers what I was working on or where I was going to be speaking. You know, it was pretty nuts and bolts stuff. Um but when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden One of my major streams of income, of course, dried up because authors write books and we do speaking engagements. And so there were no speaking engagements. I had a book release, but there was no book tour. I was just locked in my office. And I wasn't entirely sure how, as a freelancer, I was going to make a living. And a friend of mine came to me and said, Have you seen this new platform, Substack? Um, They allow writers to connect with their readers and it's not just about information it's about creating community and so I I checked it out and I got pretty excited about it and and so I began this this project of writing a newsletter and it isn't just what I'm doing but instead it's really become an invita- invitation into conversation with uh, my readers and people who like my work and in the last two years I I can't even believe it. The free list of subscribers has grown from 5,000 people who were on the original newsletter list to 33,000.
1: That's wild. Congratulations. It is, you know, isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's yeah. it's so important. And this is not only is it important because I'm glad that hopefully you are able to sustain your work, but also because we need community and we need people being introduced to good ideas about religion that are life-giving that are community focused that are you know that 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 shed more light rather than a a narrow constricted understanding of religion which has always been what you've offered uh to american uh religion so that's exciting i have one question is that cottage a real place or is it like a fantasy in my head that is like where i want to live of all my life
5: it's it's a real place as a matter of fact i have I'm sitting in it right
1: now. And oh so- my god. Okay, you are living the dream. It's a, you have to go there, but you know, the cottage uh, Diana Butler Bass, you'll find it and it it is like the most idyllic sort of, you know, little shutters and all of this. It's you know, looks very nice. So, congratulations on all of that. Now, now we we've we've talked about the vehicle, but what is consuming you right now? I have like 50 things on my list, but, but what is like at the front of your list.
5: Well there are two things really and these are it, we talked about the mechanics of the of the cottage and the how how many people seem to be hungry for great uh words and good ideas where they can discuss religion differently with their friends and family. So I think that that's why so many people came to the cottage but what I'm focusing on there are the two things that are really driving me right now. And that is on the weekend, I just take whatever is the gospel reading in the Revised Common Lectionary, that standard set of readings through Protestant and Catholic churches. And I muse on it, I give a reflection on it. And it's always very unexpected and it's not like anything you've ever heard in church before. So I really love that. I, I have grown to love the Bible more in this weird age of deconstruction and people leaving Christianity, I think I love the Bible more than I ever have before.
1: Um, I really like what you're doing there. What? Well, you, you mentioned two things: the, the, the cottage. What was another? You know, what was another um, area that you're really focused on?
5: Well, so so that one is obviously the really optimistic, hopeful. Yeah. And fun Diana project, rereading the Bible and doing that in and for our community. <laughs> but it really relates to what happens midweek at the cottage. And that is sort of the kind of classic work that I've been doing over the years. And that taking. Stories about religion that are in culture, in the news, particularly around politics, and doing some very unusual kinds of theological analysis of them. So, I have written quite a bit in uh, recent months on Christian nationalism, on MAGA, Trumpism, gotten myself into the usual kind of trouble I get myself into. my my biggest political piece of the year was uh, an analysis of Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia's um, religious background and opinions, which was stuff that nobody else was doing in advance of his election. And I wound up doing kind of a deep dive on that. And people are always calling me up and saying, can you explain a little bit more about what Youngkin's point of view is, and sort of how even these kind of Supposed moderates like Youngkin are really using religion in in ways that are are frankly dangerous. And so and and then I write as well about religious decline and trends in religion. So that all happens in midweek, and yeah. I feel like it's really important to keep both of those things in conversation,
1: right. like right. you
5: were just saying.
1: Yeah you you have done so much work on going to the roots i mean you've already like already numerous numerous times in this conversation you go to the root of something like the radical part of it uh the root part of it where are we like i just am going to ask you like where are we in a in in what looks like a trajectory of america like what like what what are what are, what are we what are we doing right now in, in as someone who's looked at a history of, a, of faith and also in that looking at history of faith, you're also often forecast. And so I'm just wondering if you might just opine. I'm not going to hold you to it because, you know, we don't know. But like, what? where are we? Like, What is going on with religion in America, according to Diana Butler Bass right now? <laughs>
5: well, um, I have to confess that I'm really uh, quite worried and um, 20 years ago well, it was probably about the same time we met I wrote a column for Sojourner's blog which was then called God's Politics. I, I've i got to go back and, and pull this th- that column out but everybody back then was talking about oh, how, you know, if we could just swing so much of the evangelical vote toward more progressive causes, everything would be okay. And um, there, so there was this real talk about evangelicals and politics. And I was always really worried about that. And I wrote a piece for Sojourners, I'm surprised they published it, um, that the evangelicalization of politics would not lead toward new progressive sort of religion, religion, practices of religion politics. I thought the evangelicalization of politics would lead towards atheism Um, because all I could see was how strong, robust, and compelling the religious right was. And I thought whatever these few people do and the evangelical left, it's not really going to have a terribly huge effect. And instead, what's going to happen is that all of this religious right stuff is going to create an entire generation of young Americans who are growing up in evangelical churches who think that Christianity is right wing evangelicalism and think that in order to be a Christian, you have to be a conservative Republican. Um, And that that would wind up being dangerous. And that all of the people who were being exposed to that, those views, a good proportion of them would probably leave religion altogether. And so I remember when I wrote that, and there were people at Sojourners who actually laughed at that piece. Although I have to confess, Jim Wallace liked it and was willing to engage me on it. He, he 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 was interested in what I was seeing there. But that's basically what's happened in the last 20 years. So what we have right now, I think, is an entire generation of people who have been inoculated against specifically Christianity and religion more generally by having grown up in these evangelical churches some 20 and 30 years ago that were had become sort of full on uh, outposts for white Christian nationalism that we were then just referring to as the religious right. So that that meant it would cause a precipitous. It would it would continue to add to the precipitous decline in the mainline, because people who grew up within that evangelicalism, they never thought that liberal Protestants, mainline Protestants, were even Christians. Um, they were taught from the young their youngest. Memories. Never, 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 never walk in the door of a UCC or Lutheran or Episcopal or Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian church, because that's where the devil lives. Those people are terrible. They're all heretics. And so there was no there was no sort of outflow place for that whole generation of people. They couldn't just sort of leave church and walk down the street to the nice Methodist church. Um, and, and so they just bypassed all of those churches and now are basically sort of none of the above kind of free floating Christians. I follow Jesus or or nothing at all. And, and people can make those choices. That is really fine. Uh, I appreciate a lot of the honesty and religious choice that people are making right now. But what it means is something that is so significant for our culture. And this is where Diana is worried, is those churches that those those that whole generation of really hurt wounded people, all those people who had been basically poisoned uh, by evangel toxic evangelical religion, all the churches they bypassed on their way to something else are now failing. And those churches are churches that held an enormous amount of what I would call balanced social capital in American religion and politics. Those were churches that basically Ran soup kitchens. Those are churches that taught people about Luther's theology of freedom of a Christian. Those were churches where Republicans and Democrats could disagree on things, but they got together and they worked toward common good. They believed in something called common good. And with those people in those kinds of churches and your basic sort of local Catholic parishes, those kinds of churches formed a a sort of social background that became part of American political practice. And so now that that is gone, I think that 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 the loss of that has led to two very dangerous things one is people have now replaced those kinds of religious communities with identifying only with a partisan political community and so the loss of these communities where there was some possibility of people working together has exacerbated division it's made it worse Um, and then the other thing is is that since those churches are declining Their budgets are going down and they have less in terms of actual physical resources to take care of the physical and financial needs of all of the groups of people that they used to serve. And so while we have the crisis of economic inequality and the crisis of climate change and what that is doing, um, to the middle class, working class, and the poorest people among us, um, and the, those social nets are all being taken away by the government, uh, what that's doing to the, th- that social class is that churches who are being, who, who everybody says, oh, don't worry, the government shouldn't do it. Uh, nonprofits should do it. But those churches and, and religious institutions were the main nonprofits that were doing it. And mm-hmm. now, without people, they don't have the money to do it. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think that religion yeah. going away ultimately is a bad thing for politics and sort of the social equity around economics.
1: Yeah. You know, part of what I hope to do with Interfaith Alliance is like to really figure out ways to... Um, be part of a conversation about what you're about about how important these locations are, because at the same time, that that these that there is a loss of capital there. There's a there, there's an concerted effort among some to reduce public institutions. Libraries, things like things that used to be like the the, the mainstays of an or of a, of a community are also getting hollowed out. So if there is a kind of a more conservative sort of January sixth attack on democracy, we won't have a network in place. So part of the goal uh, for interfaith alliance is to actually find ways to build ties and 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 communities within the community.
5: Wouldn't it be something? <laughs> Paul I just I literally just thought about this when you said it. Wouldn't it be something if all those old like church libraries, I mean every one of these old churches that are still around all have old libraries mostly with a lot of moldy books from the 1950s. But what if instead of those old books people went ahead and filled them with all the banned books?
1: Oh my god, that and, is such a good uh, idea. The church that is such could Okay people, a you have gotten your 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 expert tip from Diana Butler Bass on how to fill your sanctuary it is it is uh, read a band book week at first baptist of wherever you know i mean like come on like really knowledge cannot you know knowledge is not going to hurt us this is and especially knowledge about increasing the humanity of our neighbors uh and uh and so that is a great idea that is just one example of the things you are going to gain when you become part of diana butler bass's <laughs> substack the cottage and also so do you, you're always, I mean, you're the author of like a bazillion books. I think that's the number. Maybe it's a little <laughs> more than that. Um, but but is do you have a book project in mind as well? Or are you working on anything that you're really excited that you want to share with us?
5: Yeah, I'm working on two history projects right now. Uh, one is a sort of a little handbook that's not unlike uh, Timothy Snyder's little book, On Tyranny. And it's mm, a little mm. tiny guidebook on history as a spiritual practice and you know, how you engage practice, history and why we must engage it. And it's just little brief sort of essays. And then the other uh, book that I'm working on is a, really a project about civil religion. And um, I make the point that we, we're living in an age of iconoclasm. Uh, where and for people who don't know that big the big theological word means ripping statues down and uh, Christianity has a lot of times in its history when it's been through iconoclastic periods when they go when people go through and rip statues down and one of the things I think is really fascinating about human beings is that even once we rip statues down we never leave our altars empty We always go eventually and put something new up. And so then the new book is tentatively called Empty Altars. And it's a look at what are we going to do now that we have empty altars, basically, in every American city? Do we just drive over top of them? Do we just plant flowers where they used to be? um what will go up in their place and how do we create a sort of pantheon of icons heroes and saints uh, for the kind of america we want to be and so that's mm. the question i just was really interested in exploring that and um, it was ins- inspired in part because i live in virginia and if you um, drive down monument avenue in richmond which used to be the basically the public altar space the uh, to the Confederacy, gigantic statue after gigantic statue after gigantic statue down miles of Monument Avenue, all celebrating slavery and, and white supremacy. And now if you look down that street, it's a friend of mine who is a Baptist pastor in Richmond. So congratulations, he's in your tradition, liberal Baptist. Um, he, he said to me recently, Gosh, every time I look down Monument Avenue, all I see are all those empty altars. And as Mm. soon as he said it, I went, Mm. oh, my gosh, that's a great title for a book. And Mm. so that's really sparked my theological and historical imagination.
1: And also, like, the creativity and the imagination that is, you know, kind of at the root of of religion in, in good ways is, like, what can we... What can we look, dig deep and imagine going there? Um, that is a wonderful idea, and that's going to be a fabulous book. We will have you on many times before then, but I love both of those projects. Diana Butler Bass is a public theologian, popular speaker, and award-winning author. Her most recent book is Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Diana, thank you for being with us on State of Belief Radio.
5: I'm just really thrilled to be here. And congratulations, Paul. I look forward to how this program grows and and develops under your leadership.
1: And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. And I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member of Interfaith Alliance today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week when I talk to Rabbi Sandra Lawson. I cannot wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children, what's
6: that sound? Everybody look what's going down.